Hey everybody, this is Devin Boker, and this is Wildlife. Today, instead of our usual, we are celebrating our very first Citizen Science Friday, part of an ongoing mini-series of one episode per month dedicated to the amazing opportunities that exist out there for everyday people to get involved in science. To kick it off, we're starting with one of my favorite apps of all time, and a very, very wonderful person. Carrie Seltzer, Stakeholder Engagement Strategist for iNaturalist. She has a background in ecology, and well, we'll let her tell you the rest. Sure. Um, in grad school, I did a side project in citizen science. We piloted a small program related to bee abundance and diversity in the Chicago area. But my main dissertation work was on seed dispersal and forest regeneration. Um, and I didn't exactly anticipate getting into citizen science. I came across iNaturalist when I was in grad school um, in 2012 and thought, whoa, this is really cool. And was using it a little bit for um, a project we were doing, trying to get uh, uh, get photos of um, plants into the Encyclopedia of Life. But I very quickly realized this is super cool. I could spend a lot of time on this. I really need to focus on finishing my dissertation and I'll come back to this later. Sure. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was my um, sort of first experience with iNaturalist. Um, but then once I finished my PhD, um, I did a short postdoc, but then I actually ended up working on citizen science at National Geographic. And in my role there, I was collaborating closely with iNaturalist. And that was very exciting. Um, I loved it. I got to know it much more deeply um, and more of the sort of technical side of things a little bit um, and, and really just came to appreciate even more the depth of, of functionality and the power of iNaturalist. Um, in 2012, I didn't have a smartphone yet, but by 2014, I did when I started um, collaborating with them closely. So I've been working for iNaturalist officially for about a year and a half. Okay, okay. You know, I think I first came across iNaturalist, um, gosh, when was it? I think around 2016, maybe. Um, I, at the time I was working as a park ranger for the, for the Army Corps of Engineers and frequently had people asking what different things were. And, you know, when you're in a job like that, it's really helpful if you know what everything is around you as much as you can and uh, work on identifying things because inevitably someone will ask you. Uh, it's funny when you're a naturalist, people think you just, what, what is this poop right here? What is, what is this rock? And you're supposed to have all the answers. And I came across iNaturalist and discovered it was a really helpful tool. And I, I use it, I, I would say, probably daily at this point. Um, I suppose before I give too much away about it, uh, maybe uh, what... So what, what exactly is iNaturalist? Sure. So first and foremost, I think it makes sense to describe iNaturalist as a social network of nature lovers and a byproduct of a social network where you've got people sharing their photos of biodiversity and crowdsourcing identifications for each other. The byproduct of that is a heck of a lot of very useful data for science about what species are found where and when. What I think my favorite thing about it is, is it seems to be, um, uh, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a, well, I mean, you know, I, myself, I'll go on there and I help people identify things. Um, 
which is really cool that, you know, I can go on there and I can search uh, based on different species or location and I can help to identify things. People help me out all the time. Um, the amount of people and the amount of locations, it seems like it's really a like democratization of science. It's like bringing, bringing science to the people and, and just really crowdsourcing all that information. How many, how many people um, use iNaturalist, you know? Sure, I can sort of give the, the stats as of the end of July here. Um, we've had uh, 1.6 million people create accounts. Um, and we've had about 700,000 people who have ever submitted an observation. Um, on a sort of recent monthly basis, we've got about 150 160,000 people who are interacting with iNaturalist by adding an observation, comment, or identification in the last month. So wow. that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 pretty significant. Uh, so um, don't hate me. I'm going to ask about a couple more numbers here. So, uh, do you know about how many species have been have been recorded? Yeah. That's an easy one. Our sort of okay. top level stats are um, immediately visible when you look at the sort of explore page on iNaturalist, which is like top level. If you go to the website, it's not so visible in the app, but if you go to the website, the top level header, one of the things is explore. And if you click there, you can see globally the stats for how many observations, how many species, how many people have contributed to identifications, and how many people have submitted observations. And so for species, as of today, we're up to 214,981. And I should clarify that um, in this case, those are sort of unique taxa. So there okay. are probably more species that are, I would say, uniquely identified taxa so far. Um, there are probably there are surely more species than that represented in iNaturalist observations so far, but it may be that not all of them have yet been identified all the way to species. So I think one of the really important things to understand about how identifications are crowdsourced in iNaturalist is to understand that every identification is somehow attached to the tree of life. And it is a single tree for all observations everywhere in the world and the root of that tree is life, like this is something live. <laughs> and yeah. then we've got the branches from there. So what that means is that um, if you don't know what you saw, um, let's say you come across a cool flower and you wanna know what it is. Even mm -hmm. if you don't really have a guess for what kind of flower it is, it's actually really helpful to start with that initial identification of something just like plants or flowering plants. Because what you've done then is you've taken this observation that could be any kind of living thing, and you've said, I know it's a plant. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think sometimes initially people feel um, reluctant to put such a broad or, or perhaps like obvious um, sure. identification on their observations, but it's actually really important because when folks who like to help other people identify plants are looking for plant observations, they're not going to look in that whole bucket of like unknown life. They're gonna look yeah. for stuff that's already been identified as some kind of plant, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, if you do, when you do make your first iNaturalist observations, if you identify it just 
well, if you don't add any identification initially, um, don't be offended if somebody <laughs> takes your picture of a bird and just says it's a bird. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, they're they're not they're not trying to insult anyone's intelligence. They're trying to help the iNaturalist community who can mm -hmm. better identify birds find your bird observation or find your plant observation. So in the best case scenario, these per these identifications on iNaturalist progress from something broader and coarser to something that's more specific and hopefully down to the species level. Sure. You know, and I think that speaks to like just this, this, if I can digress for a second, I think it speaks to like this, this, uh, this more deep thing with people. I, so like as a teacher, sometimes I'll see actually a lot more than sometimes it's almost every time, you know, let's say we're, we're doing something where they have to, they have to form a hypothesis and they just have to, they just have to make a guess and, and say what they think is going to happen. And then afterwards, you know, they realize, well, no, something completely different happened. They, they turn in their sheet or whatever. And I'd say maybe 90% of the time they erase their hypothesis and they put a new one so that it can match whatever actually happened. And I'm always trying to get it through that. No, like it, it's okay if it's wrong. Um, that's, that's totally fine. It's about the journey of, of figuring out the correct answer. Um, and I think maybe that's for a lot of people, maybe they just want to be right the initial time that they record their observation uh, or not record anything at all, you know, rather than put yourself out there as, you know, making a wrong guess, it's just easier sometimes to leave it uncategorized. But, you know, I suppose uh, in the long run, that's not really what it's about, right? It's, it's about um, uh, helping each other out. It's about the collaboration and, and finding the right answer. Yeah, I think you're right. Those things are totally connected. I think a lot of people are afraid of being wrong and so they don't put anything, which that that can be a, a fine strategy. I'm mostly just want to make sure that that um, folks who listen understand that when if they do put it up with nothing, if they get that initial identification, yeah. there's something very broad. Um, <laughs> there's there's a reason for that. It's not. Um, <laughs> It, there, well, there, I know it's a bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think people do um, get, uh, some users initially do get really frustrated. So I, I want to be sure. Sure. Uh, I'll try to explain that. Um, but I even specifically say, in, so in my user profile, which you can see if you're looking at the iNaturalist website, and I should clarify, iNaturalist is a platform similar to Facebook in that you can access it through the website, you can access it through an app. Um, iNaturalist is the same way. Mm -hmm. Like Facebook, however, <laughs> there are things you can do on the website that you can't do on the app. So the app is really streamlined and focused on helping you make and share your observations, but the app is really not optimized right now for helping you interact more easily with other people's observations. Sure. You can do some exploration of observations around you in particular, um, but um, not a lot of identifications get added on the app. Most of the identification work and activity happens on the iNaturalist website, same for data exploration, data downloads, that, that kind of thing. So I think it's also important for people to understand that the app is like a limited slice of what you can do with iNaturalist. There's a lot more that you can do. And see, that's that that alone is astonishing to me because as someone who uses it regularly, uh, I, I'm continually amazed at the amount that you can do with the app itself. Uh, so the fact that you can do more <laughs> more just using the online platform that I mean that's uh, um, that's amazing 
Yeah, I also should mention that the Android app and the iOS app um, have a, have some different features and, and functionality. So if you're talking with a friend and someone's like, I can't do that on mine, it, it may sure. be our iOS and Android versions are okay. somewhat different right now. Um, but back to, I wanted to mention something that I, sure. that I have on my user profile. Okay. Um, which you can see um, if you're looking at profiles on the website. Um, I put in some advice to new users. And one of the things I specifically say is if you're the kind of person who's really anxious about being wrong, don't be so afraid of being wrong um, because um, mistakes are part of learning. Um, that said, you know, we, we do want people to, um, we, we, I think we have both extremes of, of, of the sure. problem there. We've got some folks who are, um, are completely unafraid of being wrong <laughs> and, <laughs> and will um, add a lot of uh, identifications without um, much investigation or caution. Mm -hmm. And then we've got folks who are, are so afraid of being wrong that, um, you know, maybe they could, they could uh, put themselves out there a little bit and we sure. start that problem. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and on the topic of, of sort of very wrong uh, identifications, I, I think it's, in, it's important to explain also that there's two ways that we, um, two ways that identifications happen in iNaturalist. And the one that has the sort of G-wow factor is the computer vision suggestions. So this is mm -hmm. what you see when you first go to add an identification, when you're making your observation, it'll um, run the computer vision algorithm and suggest species based just on similarity, visual similarity, with mm -hmm. a little bit of um, additional information about whether or not it's been seen nearby where, where that observation was made. Um, sure. But what it's not doing, and this is really important, it is not excluding things that are only found on other continents, for example. Sure. So that means that, you know, if you are in Florida, um, you might get suggestions based purely on visual similarity of New Zealand alpine endemics to take an extreme. <laughs> it's possible. Um, and so what I think it's also important for people to consider is that when you see that list of suggested species based on visual similarity, there's an option to sort of get more information about those species, get a little more information about them and see if see where they've been found on the map. And if, if they're not popping up anywhere near you, that's a sign that it's probably not that. Um, sure. So take those take those suggestions with caution. Do investigate them. Um, they're definitely the source of a lot of um, somewhat uh, humorous sometimes uh, <laughs> misidentifications that happen on iNaturalist. Um, there are always identification mistakes on iNaturalist, especially with almost 24,000 observations. By the time this airs, I know we'll be past 25 million observations. There are always mistakes, but I think the beauty of iNaturalist is that the community can always correct them. And so if you see something yeah. that isn't identified correctly on iNaturalist, you can create an account if you don't have one, and you can chime in and help correct that. So I suppose that, I mean, that there's, there's kind of a couple of things here. So, um, I, I have definitely noticed, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, I, I think there was a moth recently I was trying to figure out and 
one of the first ones, it did look really similar, but then I, I looked at the more information and it was in like Borneo. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm in Minnesota. Um, so probably not that. And I looked a little farther down the list and I found one that looked a little bit different, but was in Minnesota and did some more research and, uh, ended up concluding that it had to be that one. Um, and I suppose that's kind of in the nature of, of science itself. If you're going to do this kind of thing, if you're going to get involved in citizen science, you should probably embrace the nature of science, which is to not take things at face value and to and to take that other step to, to dig a little bit deeper. So I, I, I am continually amazed by, you know, iNaturalist itself. Um, the machine learning, I don't fully understand how it works. It's like a magic trick every time. And sometimes it's just remarkably accurate. Um, you know, sometimes I use a blurry photo and it still gets it. And I'm like, I, I don't know how, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Technology's come a very long way. Um, but, but yeah, I, I suppose it's very important. I, I'll just say it again to highlight it also that you should, you should dig a little bit deeper. Um, so, so iNaturalist itself, I mean, what's the, what's the history of it? Where did this come about? Um, how did, how did this get started? Sure. So, iNaturalist was an idea of the current co-director and one of the co-founders, Kenichi Ueda. And he actually went to grad school to get his master's to figure out how to build iNaturalist. We covered this a little bit in a blog post that we did last March, so March of 2018, um, when iNaturalist turned 10 years old. And he, the, the sort of first um, available version of iNaturalist went live in March 2008 as part of a final project um, for this master's degree from the um, University of California Berkeley School of Information, um, and it was a it was it was essentially their final project. Um, Kenichi Ueda, uh, Nate Agren, um, and Jessica Klein. So then for a while, iNaturalist was sort of a side project. Um, and then Scott Laurie, who's the other co-director of iNaturalist, he came across iNaturalist and met Kenichi in 2011. And then they started working together on it. And Scott started doing a lot of the promotion and Kenichi focused on a lot of the infrastructure. Um, and then in 2014, iNaturalist joined the California Academy of Sciences. And a few years after that, it became a joint initiative of both the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. And that's how it is today. Which is is uh, super cool. That's <laughs> that's very cool. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've mentioned a couple of ways that I I mostly use it. Um, you know, I use it for uh, you know uh, some of my own identifications. I use it to help other people. Um, in in some more I guess official capacities, um, some of the other things I've done. Uh, I, I used to be a naturalist for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And uh, as a naturalist, you do weekly programs, well, more than just once a week, many, many weekly programs. And something I started doing was um, actually the uh, inspiration behind what we're doing now with the podcast. It was Sit Sci-Fry. And um, we did some science things. And usually the thing that we ended up doing were bio blitzes um, on, on Fridays. And so people who were at the campsite could come, they could download the app, and then we would uh, go out and, and do a bio blitz. So I was wondering if you could... Um, you know, aside from just the general identification, if you could explain what some of the other uh, things are that you can do with iNaturalist, like the bio blitzes and, and projects and that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. So iNaturalist itself is kind of like one 
huge ongoing global bio blitz. Um, and you can filter and search the observations um, based on countries and states or subnational political units around the world, um, down to the county level in the US and sort of analogous in other countries. Um, so there's a lot that you can do with sort of the existing almost 25 million observations that iNaturalist already has. And anyone who's created an account can export the data and use it for their own projects and research purposes. Um, if you want to um, rally folks and attention around a particular effort, for example, for a BioBlitz, um, you can create a project in iNaturalist for a BioBlitz or around a specific park. Um, it could be an ongoing project for a park, for example. Um, or there are some examples of projects that are um, not just sort of place and time filters. Um, a good example of that is there's a project, I think it's called Found Feathers. And oh, super cool. Yeah, so there are folks who are really into identifying feathers, like not just entire birds, but specifically feathers. Mm -hmm. Because on iNaturalist, you can also add observations that are evid recent evidence of an organism. So for example, an observation of uh, an old nest or of scat or tracks or feathers or fur or bones, mm -hmm. sadly roadkill as well. Um, all of those things can be observations in iNaturalist. And because the identification happens at the level of, um, like the identifications are attached to the tree of life. So if it's a feather, it would still get identified as the species that it came from, right? Sure. And so in this way, um, having a project that's specifically for feathers is a way to pull together observations of feathers that you might not be able to easily find otherwise when you're searching iNaturalist. So the example of the found feathers project is what we call now a traditional project, which mm -hmm. means that you have to manually select, join that project and then select that you want to add your observation to that project. Um, but what we've been moving towards is something called a collection project, which is really okay. just more like a saved filtered search. And okay. what a collection project will do is just automatically take all of the observations that meet your search criteria and put them in a project, let you say a little bit about it, you get to put a banner image on it, um, and you don't have to worry about manually adding observations to that project. So collection projects are what we generally recommend for bioblitzes or for ongoing site-based projects. Or for example, let's say that you and your brother wanna go out or you wanna have maybe a friendly competition between the two of you over the month of September for who can find the most species. Um, you could make a project that has just your name, your username and your, um, and your brother's username. And then you can see how many species you've found together, how many observations you've made, and you can see who's made, who's made more observations, who's found more species. So you can sure. do it at the level of individual users as well. Um, and we're super competitive, so that would <laughs> that sounds kind of ideal for us. Yeah, I mean, you could even do it for the whole year. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, an approach we recommend for um, educators often as well, is to add the usernames of the students. Uh, 
Like, let's, oh, very cool. Yeah. So like if you're, um, I'll use a college example. Let's say you're teaching a semester long um, introductory ecology course and um, students are making some observations and iNaturalist as part of that. You can set up a collection project that has the individual usernames as rules so that their observations will automatically be added. And if there are additional geographic or time criteria that you want to put on that, you can add those as well. There's lots of um, configurations possible there. Okay. So with something like that, I mean, uh, that kind of brings up a, a point. So, you know, when you when you record an observation, it's not necessarily immediately, um, there, there's different grades, like there's different levels of accuracy. And so like when you submit your own observation, it's not immediately research grade. Okay. I would think that some people have questions about, um, I mean, it's kind of trust. It's a trust thing. You're trusting that someone else is actually giving you the the right answer and uh, that things are being correctly identified, especially, I would think, when it comes to things like bones and feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how does that work then? How do you how do you know that someone else is giving you an accurate answer? Yeah. Um, what what kind of happens with the observation? Yeah, I think I should describe the broad categories that we put observations into. So sure. it's make an observation of a wild organism um, then by and and your observation has all of the data it has where you were um, it has when you saw it um, and it has evidence attached to it which is overwhelmingly photos but could be sound as well sure. so if it has all of those pieces then it goes into this category called called needs ID and it'll stay in needs ID, essentially, until it gets confirmation at the species level without disagreement, or at least two-thirds agreement at the species level. So this means that in the simplest scenario, um, if I upload an observation with a photo of a northern cardinal, and one other person comes along and says, well, okay, so if I upload an observation of a northern cardinal with a photo, it'll upload to iNaturalist and be in that needs ID category. Okay. And so if someone else comes along and says, I agree, it's a northern cardinal, so they add their identification northern cardinal as well, then you've got this observation that's got two, two identifications of the same species in agreement. That becomes research grade. Okay. So this means that there can be misidentified research grade observations. So let's say that in this, we'll use the same Northern Cardinal case. Um, sure. Let's let's say this was actually an egregious misidentification. And it was <laughs> like, a, like a Robin or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in that case, um, then if a third person comes along and they add a different identification, um, let's say they say it's a blue jay, um, then what will happen is that it will no longer be research grade. It'll come out of that bucket. It'll go back okay. to the needs ID bucket. And what it will do is look for the common ancestor of blue jay and northern cardinal. And it'll and then the identification will sit at that sort of coarser level of identification until other fo- other identifiers come along. And oh, that's cool. Add other <laughs> So sometimes for things that are difficult to identify or commonly misidentified, you know, sometimes you need 
five or six or seven identifications to get to this greater than two thirds agreement about the species. So, okay. so it's, it's dynamic. Okay. No, that's, that's really cool. Um, I didn't realize it, it did that whole, the common ancestor thing. That's, that's really neat. Okay. Yeah, um, and, and this is also why it's really helpful if you're like, let's say you're looking at, um, what's a good example? Um, you're looking at a group where there's maybe several similar species within a genus that are difficult to tell apart. Mm -hmm. um, if you maybe you look at the computer vision suggestions and you're like, wow, those look really similar. I don't know how to tell those apart. Um, a, a more conservative approach is to say, well, it, it looks like several species in that genus. It's probably in that genus, but I don't know enough to say confidently which species in that genus it is, then you can just add a genus level identification. And then folks who do have more expertise in that genus can come along and add species sure. identifications. I do that quite a bit. Sure, that makes sense. So so when it comes to um, broader, broader science, like, you know, I, I'm kind of envisioning a lot of potential here. So like, you know, for, for uh, I guess for a more local example, so like here, here in Minnesota, we have great wolves, um, territory, the occupied range in the state is fairly large. Um, when it comes to, you know, like a, a population count, I, I suppose there would be like potential for, um, or, or for like figuring out the occupied range to, to delineate the range. You know, if there are observers, if, if you can gain enough observers to go out and record observations, even if it's evidence uh, of the organism, you could, you could kind of map out um, sort of a boundary line or, or where, where these animals are actually present. Um, just seeing a lot of a lot of like interesting potentials for things like that. So what what are some of the ways um, that this data, you know, aside from going on to iNaturalist and kind of serving it in this large database and this this map, um, what are some of the ways that the information uh, gets used by um, not not necessarily just citizen scientists, but maybe uh, scientists, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. large organizations or something like that. Yeah, iNaturalist data is used extensively and. Um, we need to do a better job communicating that. Um, this is something that I know, uh, something I've really been wanting to work on um, because sure. there are so many cool stories about data use from iNaturalist. But a lot of it happens when we share data um, with sort of downstream data users. So one of the things that happens when your observation gets that research grade designation is that we then share it with the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is called GBIF for short. And GBIF is the world's largest collection of biodiversity occurrence data. And it pulls data from all sorts of sources around the world, including a lot of museum specimen data. So um, oh, that very is cool. quite analogous to iNaturalist data, because if you think about what exists in in museum collections yeah. the yeah. records associated with the specimens it's you know someone found this species here on this date and time um, and the specimen is the evidence um, so there's tons of museum specimen data in gbif but increasingly there's a lot of citizen science data as well so most of the records in gbif right now are actually from ebird so oh, okay huge 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 amount of citizen science data represented in GBIF. Um, and iNaturalist is a big source of non-bird data, especially recent 
so in the past decade, non-bird sure. data um, globally. So the the co really cool thing that happens once iNaturalist data is shared with GBIF is that then iNaturalist records can be downloaded as part of larger GBIF data sets. And crucially, GBIF then issues a digital object identifier or a unique DOI associated with a download. And researchers are supposed to cite that then in their resulting publications. Okay. And what it allows you to do is attach the publications to the data sets that provided data for that download. And okay. if you look at the iNaturalist research grade observations data set in GBIF, you can see how many papers have cited at least one record from the iNaturalist data set. Um, and as of the last time I checked, let me pull it up right now, there have been 336 citations so far of iNaturalist data via GBIF. Wow. Wow. There are even more uses of iNaturalist data that aren't recorded via GBIF, but it's actually easiest for us to track if someone includes a GBIF dataset citation. Okay. I can also elaborate on some more specific examples of the kinds of research that are. Sure. I think one super cool example is looking at the geographic variation in wing coloration in dragonflies. This Ooh. thing that sort of takes it to the next level because it's not just what species was found where and when, but the physical characteristics of those organisms, the individuals. Sure. So this is the kind of thing that historically you would have had to have physical specimens to do. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously photos can't fully replace specimens, but there are some things, um, some things that, that you can do even without a physical specimen. And um, this sort of cursory examination of the coloration, do they have light colored wings or do they have dark colored wings, um, is possible from photos on iNaturalist. And what you get with iNaturalist data for common species that are broadly distributed is a kind of scale that would have been unimaginable a decade ago. So this particular example, I think they had more than 3,000 records from across North America. Wow, wow. They're able to look at, at wing coloration. So wow. just a really awesome example of, of, of the next kind of thing that is possible um, using mm -hmm. photo-based occurrence data. So this dragonfly study that looked at variation among wing coloration in iNaturalist observations as a piece of their study, it's called Temperature Shapes the Costs, Benefits, and Geographic Diversification of Sexual Coloration in a Dragonfly. And that was published in January of this year in the journal Ecology Letters. Wow, that that I like that example. That one's pretty cool. Um, so I mean, like you, and you could probably use it for uh, figuring out like migration patterns. I would assume, or you know, uh, pathways, migration pathways, um, potentially. I, I mean, if you're looking at you know date ranges and then comparing to locations, yeah. I, I imagine you know, like there's yeah, wow, <laughs> there's probably a lot that you could do. 
Yeah, there is a lot you can do. I do also think it's important to acknowledge the limitations. And sure. when you're looking at, like, to use the migration example that you just gave, um, I think one of the, so people often ask us, you know, like, why, what's the difference between iNaturalist and eBird when it comes to birds? Like, sure. should I put stuff in iNaturalist or why should I put stuff in eBird? And, and so I think it's worth explaining that in eBird, because you're asking for a complete checklist, what they're able to do from that, if you say like, yes, these are all the birds that I saw, um, they can infer absence in a way that you can't with iNaturalist data. Mm, okay. iNaturalist, we don't have, we have some limited functionality for doing this. It's called TRIPS um, and it's only available on the web. But because iNaturalist is all taxa, um, you know, it's really hard to ask people to say, like, did you record every species you saw, right? Sure, sure. And so, um, you know, you would have to narrow it more. And, and there's ways to take iNaturalist data and infer absence if you've got two species, for example, with similar detectability. Sure. You do this, for example, with squirrels. If you look at squirrel observations, let's say North American squirrels, um, Eastern North American squirrels even, um, <laughs> in D.C., <laughs> we've sure. Um, Eastern gray squirrels. And in the larger region, there are occasionally fox squirrels. But if you've got um, 2,000 observations of Eastern gray squirrels from DC and mm -hmm. zero observations of fox squirrels, you can infer from that that there probably are not fox squirrels there. Sure. Okay. Okay. Because people have made so many squirrel observations and they have all been Eastern gray squirrels. Okay, so it's almost like a uh, it's like a sampling game, you know, almost like in the way that you would sample, uh, you know, tag tag and release. And um, I'm blanking on the terminology here, uh, but you know, you tag fish and then and then release them and catch them again, and that's how you're figuring out you know, species abundance and the population abundance. It's kind of like kind of like that. It's a numbers game of well, I mean, if we have this many observations and there's not a single one of this, but if uh, you know, on the flip side, if you've got three squirrel observations they're all eastern gray squirrel and you don't have any red squirrel uh you can't exactly say oh there aren't any um it could just be because there hasn't been enough observations for sure yeah okay um okay. And, and that still doesn't really get at abundance which again iNaturalist is not really sure. it's it's not we're not asking people um as one of the core fields we're not asking people to to see right. how many individuals they saw. Yeah, yeah, and right. Really of course, of course. With eBirds, since they are asking for that information. Sure. So iNaturalist, it, it's just important to understand that this is um, presence-only data. Yes. There's, um, and that comes with some limitations. There's still super cool things you can do, but mm -hmm. it's not exactly the same as eBird. Sure. I, I mean, I suppose that'd just be difficult anyway. Um, anyways, iNaturalist, you can record plants. You're not going to count every goldenrod in the field that you're it, it, that could that's just a whole other layer of uh, uh information that would just be kind of complicated to purse through and verify and um okay so uh on on a sort of broad scale then what is the goal what's the ultimate vision of iNaturalist where does it where does it hope to be i mean are, are you looking for uh are you hoping for you know an, an army of data recorders out there you know just like you know, thick through every state, every country, or? So at its core, iNaturalist is an online social network for people to share biodiversity information and help each other learn about nature. 
And one of the byproducts of that is a lot of very useful information about biodiversity globally. And in terms of where we're going, right now, we do have at least one observation from every country in the world. But there are a lot of places where we have very, very little data and sure. activity. And iNaturalist works best when it's not just you out there by yourself making observations and maybe not very many people are looking at them or noticing mm -hmm. because, you know, there's so many observations coming in every day now, tens of thousands every day that um, you sort of have to, if, if you're helping people identify things on iNaturalist, you, you've got to pick your corner of the world or your, your, your little branch of the tree. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes if you're in a really, um, really sort of low activity part of the world for iNaturalist, or you're observing organisms that are, you know, really hard to identify, and there's not much of a community around it yet on iNaturalist, like, I don't know, I'm going to take a example, random example of very small things like rotifers. Say you're really into rotifers. I don't know if we've got a very strong and robust rotifer identification community. Yet. <laughs> sure. So it can be a little bit lonely if you're a little bit of a trailblazer, either sure. graphically or taxonomically on iNaturalist. And so I think what we'd like to see is thriving communities all over the world of people who want to connect with each other through sharing their observations mm -hmm. uh, and, and the same for all branches of the tree of life. Perfect. Right no, now that's we've, it. Got, um, we've got a series running that we're calling the iNaturalist World Tour. And every day we've been featuring a different country. We started with the country with the most observations, which is the United States um, mm -hmm. and then Mexico and Canada, where we've had formal relationships for a long time um, and proceeding downwards from there. So some of the countries that are um, towards the sort of less observose <laughs> end of sure. the naturalist spectrum, you know, may just have a handful, maybe from one or two people. So we'd love to see those communities um, uh, become more active. Um, and we're trying to figure out how, what, what we can, what the core iNaturalist team um, can do to help support activity in different countries. Sometimes it's translation. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it has to do with geographic boundaries or common names. Um, all of our, so iNaturalist, the, the platform, um, the website and the apps are translated into several languages and all sure. translation is done through crowdsourcing. Um, oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... Sometimes it just takes um, finding the right person and, and helping get them oriented to how to do that. Um, yeah. And then that sets the stage for things to really take off. Okay. A really cool example of that has been Russia. Russia has just exploded with fabulous observations in the last nine months. It's been phenomenal to watch. And huh. a big piece of that was getting the website and the apps fully translated into Russian. Um, and sure. spreading the word through um, sort of a network of ecologists in Russia. And now uh, they've got a friendly um, national competition happening around plant observations in particular. Uh, it's called the Flora of Russia Project. And it's just been awesome to see all these really dedicated Russian nature photographers jump on board along with a lot of botanists from herbaria across the country. Um, it's been very cool to see. Huh. 
Well, that's really cool. <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And I and I and I'm assuming you would just ideally in in a perfect world if you could get that sort of thing going in every country. Uh, that'd be amazing. That's that's kind of the dream. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about, right? So, so in addition to the categories of needs ID and research grade. Right now we have a third category called casual and casual unfortunately lumps together a whole bunch of things, um, including observations that are marked as captive or cultivated. Okay. It's an important designation and this is a question that we ask as a basic core part of every observation. So if you're in the app, it'll say like captive cultivated and you can select yes or no. By mm -hmm. default, it'll say no. Um, but if it's a plant that has been intentionally planted and cultivated in a garden, you should select yes. Um, if it's a pet, you should select yes. <laughs> select yes. Um, if it is something that you have held as just a temporary captive for the purpose of photographing it and then it will be released, that does not need to be marked as captive or cultivated. Um, but the, that designation is really important for um, things like range maps. Um, and helping keep those restricted to um, organisms that ended up where they are without the um, without the aid of people, without okay. the of, uh, without the conscious aid of people. I'll say. Sure, sure. So okay. that category. Um, so I guess if people should just be aware that if you, because many people's first observation is a pet or a garden plant. Um, but folks should know that the iNaturalist community is definitely most interested in identifying wild things. So mm -hmm. first observation is a photo of a plant in your garden or a potted plant. Um, it is probably not going to get a lot of identification attention from the community um, because they're more interested in wild plants. So sure. when you're giving iNaturalist a try, go outside, find a bug, find some kind of weed in the sidewalk. I personally love looking for sidewalk weeds. I it's I, I take it as a special challenge to like find one that's flowering, um, <laughs> growing unattended in some corner of a parking lot or whatever. Even if I'm in the middle of a city, I really love the challenge. Sure. Um, so yeah, I just encourage folks to try it with the the wild things um, and the bees and other insects that are found on your garden plants. Those are wild, but. It's just something to keep in mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can I issue a challenge to listeners? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right now, so I've been trying to do this for a while, and there are many, many of our great community members who have been doing this in a very dedicated way for, for a long time now. Um, but I'm trying to make at least one observation every day. And I, right now, am in about maybe a 115-day streak. Um, so oh, wow. I'm trying to see how long I can keep that up. Sometimes, especially when it was cold outside, it's like, you know, I'd be in bed and I would think, oh no, I haven't made an observation today. And so then I go like searching in the basement to try and find a cellar spider uh, <laughs> or, or something like that. Um, but I think it's a fun challenge to try and look for something, notice mm -hmm. some wild biodiversity every single day in your life. Yeah. And and what a way of uh, of helping you just be a little bit more more present, more more mindful, and and aware of uh, aware of nature and your surroundings to, to to realize that 
nature isn't necessarily something that's far away. Um, wild things aren't necessarily something that's, you know, an hour drives north into the woods. Uh, it could very well be in your basement or in the corner of your kitchen if you haven't cleaned it in a while or uh, right outside on your front porch or uh, under your porch light um, at, at nighttime or, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Um, you just have to have your eyes open and be open to it and, and, and ready to look. Um, I totally agree. For me, I think the point when I realized that about iNaturalist, that it opened my eyes in a way that even as a biologist, I hadn't really been looking at the world that way before. I call mm-hmm. it my iNaturalist eyes. And so I just walk around everywhere now with my iNaturalist eyes. And I love going to a new city. Like I said, I love going to a new city and being downtown and looking for cockroaches. And mm-hmm. I must be one of the only people in the world who's like excited when I see a rat. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh can I get a picture of it? Shoot, they're so hard to photograph. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'll say, um, you know, I so my, my family, we have... Um, my mother-in-law has uh, some property on a lake and there's uh, a lot of it that's, you know, some native growing up plants and, and some wooded areas and stuff. And we go up there on the weekend sometimes in the summer, um, pretty frequently actually. And I can't tell you how often they, they pick on me because I will spend um, two hours like staring at a five by five patch of plants because the longer you look, the more you see these, you know, tiny little insects and, um, plants that you didn't really notice were there, but they're kind of underneath They're or interesting fungi or, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it, it really, I have to agree with you. It's, it's in the last few years that I've been using it, you know, despite my background, um, despite, you know, being a naturalist for as long as I have, uh, it has completely reshaped the way that I, that I interact with nature, um, and the way that I perceive it. And, and, you know, we go on walks and I'm, you know, when I'm looking at the different plants, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've, I've logged that. I've identified that. Oh, that's something new and stopping to look at it. And it's it's uh, it's it's definitely something that's impacted my life for the better. And, and so I'm hoping um, that by by doing this and by putting this out there um, and for our for our listeners to to learn about um, that, that's something that can happen for them, too, that it can leave a a positive impact on their life um, and then that they in turn can um, leave a positive impact on iNaturalist by by becoming involved. And I, you know, I, would even like to, uh, look into, um, I'm sure my brother would agree, uh, you know, making a, a specific project for, for the wildlife and, and to challenge our, our listeners to, um, uh, you know, identify as many species as they can, um, do giveaways for the, the person who's logged most identifications in a month. Um, that sort of a thing. I'd, I'd really like to, to do that moving forward. I think that's a great idea. I'm glad that you're excited about spreading the word about how iNaturalist can open your eyes to the incredible diversity of life that surrounds us wherever we are. So have you have you explored the Seek by iNaturalist app yet? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh, you've got to check it out. So okay. Seek by iNaturalist is an app that we updated extensively at the beginning of April. And the coolest thing about what you can do in Seek is that when you open the camera within the Seek app, it's going to, whatever you point your camera at, it's going to suggest identifications based solely on computer vision. Oh, wow. Okay, that's pretty cool. (laughs) So it means you don't have to take a picture yet. Um, 
And part of the motivation for this was that um, if you're a nature novice or unfamiliar with a particular species, you don't necessarily know what features or angles or at what scale you need to document the organism. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so what this encourages people to do is get closer a lot of times with plants, um, mm-hmm. you know, fill the frame. Obviously, we want people to exercise caution for their own safety, yeah. the safety of the organisms that they're observing. But I think plants are a really good example of this. Um, mm-hmm. And so as you're looking through the Seek camera, as you get closer to an organism, usually you'll get a more specific identification. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seek is gamified. So you get badges for observing different species. Um, and there are challenges to find different kinds of organisms as well. But the thing to know about Seek is that those identifications that are happening in real time in the camera are based purely on computer vision, which means they could be completely wrong. Sure. It, it, there is an optional connection between Seek and iNaturalist. If you want to log in with an iNaturalist account to the Seek app, you can optionally submit your observations to iNaturalist. Okay. Not required. Seek is designed to be kid safe and very privacy conscious. So if you don't submit observations to iNaturalist, then we know we, we know essentially nothing about where you are or how you're using the app. Um, okay. And, and that makes it really safe for kids since you can't... Um, yeah, yeah. You can't create an, an iNaturalist account if you're under the age of 13 without parental consent, which is mm-hmm. now we do have a parental consent pathway within the Seek app, um, which is new. Um, but this we see as a really great tool for younger kids, um, and for folks who aren't interested in sharing data about themselves, what they've seen, but still want that answer. Mm -hmm. So I, I encourage folks to check it out. Um, but if you want to be contributing data for citizen science, um, you know, iNaturalist is the way to go or submitting data from Seek to iNaturalist, but... Um, if you're really concerned about the data, iNaturalist is still going to be the core thing. But if you're concerned about privacy or about um, sort of getting quick answers or gamification, check out Seek. That seems as good as place as any to conclude today's episode, our, our very first Citizen Science Friday. Thank you again to Carrie Seltzer of iNaturalist. Um, we really genuinely appreciate uh, your time and your willingness to sit down and talk with us and everything that you and iNaturalist are doing. And in fact, after our conversation, um, Richard and I took a look at some things and and we decided, you know what, let's start our own iNaturalist community. So we created a new joinable project that allows you to connect with a community of over 750,000 scientists and naturalists who can help you to learn more about nature, help confirm identifications, and all the other wonderful things that iNaturalist is capable of doing. By recording and sharing your observations, you help to create quality research data for scientists working to better understand and protect nature. iNaturalist is a joint initiative by the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. You've just listened to about an hour of really awesome stuff, just awesome stuff about all of the different things that uh, they are doing and, 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 and the different um, uh, the different ways that the information is being used by um, scientists around the globe. You can be a part of that. 
For details on how to join our project and connect with other listeners, visit the wildlife.blog iNaturalist. Remember, the wildlife is listener and reader supported. Visit patreon.com slash the wildlife to become a member or join one of our exclusive clubs for as little as a dollar a month. Of course, it wouldn't be right to go without thanking our already patrons, members of the wildlife who make all of this possible, the blog, the podcast, all of it. Thank you so much, Chris Trankel, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Andrea Lloyd, and Bridget Fitzgerald. You help to remind us why we do the show, why it's worth something, and, I mean, obviously, we couldn't do it without you. Wherever you're listening, be sure to leave a rating and a comment. One, it helps us to better understand who our audience is and what you need, and it helps to make our show more visible to people who might not have discovered us yet. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or corrections of any kind, send us a message at hey.thewildlife at gmail.com or feel free to message or follow our official Instagram account at thewildlife.blog or my personal one at Devin the Nature Guy. Thank you for listening. See you next time.